How was everybody's weekend? Unproductive, thanks to you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What'd you do? Uh, Justin made Javon and I buy a PlayStation 4. What? <laughs> so it was, it was kind of a snowball effect. Len mentioned he was thinking about buying one, and then I, I, I supported him in that decision. And then once Len had got one, it was fairly easy to convince Javon to get one. So next week, we're not going to do a podcast. We're just going to live stream some Destiny. <laughs> yeah, we all played. Uh, we played all together Sunday or Saturday night? Sunday, Sunday, Sunday morning, I think we played. Sunday, yeah. Sunday evening. Mm, that was a good time. Yeah. Should we invite listeners if they play? Arpit <laughs> plays. Fuzzy? Yeah. Yeah, if you have a PlayStation Network, add me. I'm CMS Justin. I'm Igneu-Ice. <laughs> I'm I am Jarvo. That's a funny name. Yeah, that would be, be cool. I don't think you can end your nickname in ice unless you're a rapper. It's <laughs> <laughs> actually a rule. I don't know. I was actually asking him like, what, what that means. I thought it was like the um, in case of emergency thing people put on the phone. Oh, uh, yeah. I was really confused when he said that. No, that oh. just, just means I couldn't get Ignu, which I get Ignu Nerd. pretty much everywhere on the internet. But You see somebody's phone and they're like significant other or whatever, and it doesn't show their name. It just says ICE. And I'm like, what is ICE? And that was explained to me. That's oh, a terrible idea because yeah. I have no idea what that meant. <laughs> no, Apparently somebody somewhere knows what it means. To, you're supposed to do it so that emergency people can get people. But that also assumes that they can get into your phone, which if you don't have a passcode on your phone, what are you doing? Likely. Touch ID. Yeah. What, so like you're going to be like bleeding out from a car accident? They're going to be like, hold on, don't put him in the stretcher like stretcher yet. I got to get into his phone. Like, Security. That'd be, that'd be effed up. I was playing with Rust a lot in the past few days. I don't like it. Did you find that types fix everything? The type Remember system that actually, from that presentation? The type system, so this is all from a beginner perspective, so forgive me if I butcher everything about this, but the type system is actually fine. Um, it has like a modern type system, I guess you could call it. Um, strings and... There's two string types, a string and a, and a slice of a string, which is like a fixed length string, I guess. It's STR instead of like capital S string. And they're kind of confusing to to pick one. And I couldn't find a lot of documentation on like why you should choose one or the other. I finally did find one that said use STR until you need string. Um, but then the problem I have with Rust is there are pointers like C, which is fine. But then there's a concept of... Cause, so pointers are dangerous because if you have a pointer or something, you can give something to somebody, some other object, and then that can the object can change uh, that memory location, and then your pointer then doesn't point to the thing that you thought it pointed to. So Rust fixes this, fixes in, in air quotes, by having the idea of um, owning and borrowing. So there's like some some semantics on how a pointer is owned by you or by somebody else. So I was just constantly running into errors that were like, hey, you can't do this because you don't own this, or this object didn't live long enough. And I'm like, I don't no idea what I'm doing. Like like the the code looks like logical to me. And I kept changing like adding pointers, dereferencing. So you add a pointer with an and sign, you dereference it to the star. And I kept like changing um that in different levels of, of that kind of thing. And it was just a pain in the ass. I don't know why anybody would choose Rust over Go. Well, it's probably less of a pain in the ass than getting a uh, null pointer exception. <sighs> You'd think so. I don't know. So I'm I, I have like a little toy project that I work on in every language that I that I try, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on Rust for a little bit until it also seems like it, it's still changing the language. So like libraries break like every week. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off again, and hopefully somebody that knows Rust I can sit down with and and they can walk me through like what the hell borrowing means. Are there people who know Rust? I think so. I'm under that impression. Does anyone actually use it? Mozilla knows Rust. Mm. That is a Mozilla project, right? Uh, Isn't that yeah. like Steve Klabnik's uh, uh, employed by uh, them to write docs? Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, back to Haskell. <laughs> yeah, you know that there's a an edX functional programming course that starts that that started October fifteenth, okay. and it is edX. Yeah, and it's from Eric Meyer, who is known for doing Haskell things, and so you use Haskell in it. Is this a different Eric Meyer than Eric Meyer's reset? Yes. Okay. It's Eric with a K and Meyer like the grocery store. I'm not familiar with that grocery store. Yeah, maybe it's like a southern thing. <laughs> but so where so online you can register. Yeah. So it just it's just starting this week. So you can it assumes no prior knowledge of functional programming and just says you need to have programmed for one year. So it sounds like they're teaching you completely from the ground up. Okay. And edX is one of the ones where it's they're still trying to figure out their monetization model, so they have you can quote audit it for free and you know pay money if you want to get your verified certificate. So also known as it's free and just don't bother getting a certificate. Do you know how much it is if you do want a certificate? I don't know. I know Coursera actually isn't that much. I think it's maybe sixty dollars, seventy five now. Yeah. I know they had like maybe I was looking back when they had specials and stuff, but they. I think they keep experimenting with this that price point of if you're giving something away for free as well, at what point will someone pay you money so that they can then... You know what? I think part of the problem might be is that they're selling it on the validation certificate point. I almost think they would make more money if they said, hey, we give this away for free to tens of thousands of people, sometimes hundreds of thousands. Maybe it would be cool if you chipped in a little bit, hmm. you know? But they sell it on the the idea that you need a credential. So I've never done one of these like um, courses that have the, they start in a date and they have the weeks. Can you start later and then go back and start from week one? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's always intimidating me. Like I've, I've it heard like, I oh, mean, you this. can't, you can't, you know, get, if it is one of the ones with the certificate, you can't do that. But oh, really? you do have to, yeah, because the quizzes have deadlines. Mm. So, so if you care about a grade, but if you just want to basically do it on your own time without following the deadlines, then the only thing that I've seen that you have to do is make sure you register for the class during the class window, because otherwise you can't register and you can't get the archives. Oh, okay. So that's the only thing is that it's not the archives are not open and accessible at all times unless you have previously registered. It's always like uh, intimidated or prevented me from from looking into it because I hear like the Scala course, like oh it started this week or last week. I'm like oh I missed it. Yeah, well the Scala course is moving really fast. There's stuff due every every week, like because some courses are every other week. Some things do, but Scala is moving really fast. It's gonna be I'm gonna be done with it the first weekend of November. Be a Scala only, expert. Oh yeah, totally. All Scala all the time. <laughs> So did you guys read the article I sent? I did. You want to talk about trust? It was like a paper, right? Well, it was a speech. It was a speech, but then there were like figures. So it led me to believe it was like a... It did, it did read like a speech, but... There were figures, but I wonder if he had a deck when he was presenting. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I did so, read it. So we read the, the Ken Thompson lecture on trusting trust, which actually turns out... Did you all know this is famous? Like this is a really famous lecture? I didn't realize that. I did not. Did you find it from Papers We Love? I did. Nice. Uh, it was, I think it might have been under culture. I forget which which field I looked at. But Ken Thompson uh, created Unix. So that's that'd be a, that's kind of a big deal. That's how he got the Turing Award, which is yeah. a big deal. I guess that's an achievement. <laughs> I guess. I mean, if you're counting. <laughs> um, and he also, you know, unfortunately, he invented Go as well. So, so did he? So this paper is basically, oh, look, here's a clever way I can have, like, a, like a, a bug that can, like, subvert the login process. Uh, don't trust closed source programs. Well, it's, 
It's the he presented a backdoor attack, which is known. I'm straight up reading from Wikipedia. Sorry, <laughs> not sorry. Uh, now known as the Thompson hack or the trusting trust hack and is widely considered a seminal computer security work in its own right. Yeah. And so I, I, this speech is considered like a classic in computer security. It's interesting because you can tell in this in the speech when he, he references some contemporary things at the time of the writing that are very, very different now. Mm-hmm. Like talking about the like the the idealization of hackers and t- I looked up the four one four gang and <laughs> that stuff and you know, that shit gets you arrested now. Yeah. Yeah, he was talking a lot about how they need to add more laws and Yeah, more, that was kind of the, the end the end game of him talking about the he shows the exploit and then says you can't trust anything you didn't totally create yourself. Yeah, so I, I, I like this point at the end that was um, the farther down the stack an exploit exists, the less likely people are to look at it. Like Right, he put like, it in the C compiler. So anytime you compile to C, it would get reintroduced. Yeah, so like, for instance, like I write Ruby on Rails, right? So we write Ruby in our app, that's code we wrote. Um, and then we use the Rails framework. We use like, I don't know, 100 gems or something. So there could be a bug in Rails. You like 800 a... gems whenever you write stuff in Ruby. It's awful. That's, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so so the idea that those gems are written in Ruby, they're a little more likely to be audited by the Ruby community. But then some of those extent some of those gems have C extensions like Nukogiri. Yeah. Uses libxml. Um, yeah. and then Ruby itself is compiled by C. And then yeah. if you deploy, you're probably using like a bunch of other like you're using like Unix and your shell and you're using OpenSSL, which I just heard yesterday has another vulnerability that's pending. Um, they're going awesome. to announce it after they have a patch for it, which is uh, very good of them. Um yeah, like you could you could introduce a vulnerability at any point in that stack, and like the farther and farther you go down, then it's harder and harder to find, especially if you're not writing. Like our our job is not to be security experts. We we trust the libraries and the frameworks we use. I mean, it's your job not to be a security idiot. Yeah, but like I feel like nobody. There's some things that are obvious. Yeah, but like nobody is a. Um, I feel like I feel like no application developer that like writes software for a product or a you know consultant consulting kind of thing has the time to also be a security expert. Maybe I mean I find security really interesting, and I definitely know that I'm a kindergartner in computer security. Yeah, me too. But it's interesting because he basically, you know, we've we've kind of built this ever like since this lecture, we've kind of built a world where for application developers, you know, he he talked about this in 1983, and I I guess yeah, there's tons of open source projects then, but even more so now, you have libraries and frameworks that you build on, and the levels of abstraction have lengthened. And but, but has the vis- visibility also increased? I mean, all these projects have hundreds of watchers on GitHub, so I think there's just a lot more eyes on it. Yeah, but like right. So you, but you, but then inherently you have to say that I therefore trust those people and I trust the crowd. Which you would hope to be true, but like in the case of um, so like the open open SSL Heartbleed vulnerability, like nobody that that's been open source forever. And nobody found that bug. Right. One who found it and then didn't tell anyone. Yeah. So what are we discussing? Should we trust open source? Or should we trust developers? Or are we just discussing anything? I could, could I, I, I have two, some order. <laughs> I had two points that I was thinking about. Um, 
one I'm I'm just stealing from another podcast. I think it was Ruby Rogues podcast where they talked about how like Rails gets security vulnerability you know notifications or whatever to the core team like fairly often, and they patch them very quickly. And over time, um, like they kind of self claim that like Rails is one of the most secure frameworks. Um, like they have things like um, CSRF protection, which is cross-site something forgery, request forgery. So like if you have forms, it makes sure that your forms are actually submitted from the actual form that created it. And they have, they have a bunch of other layers in, in Rails and Rack that that people that know more secure, more about security than I do have spent a lot of time thinking about and, and working on. So when I'm developing an app, it's fairly fairly safe for me to just use that framework and trust it. Whereas if I were to write my own um, web server in, I don't know, like another Ruby framework like Sinatra, or if I were to write write one from scratch in any language, like, yes, I wrote that code, but there's probably 100 bugs that I haven't found yet. And the second point I was going to make was, this reminds me of, um, not necessarily continuous deployment, but the ability to recreate your infrastructure from scratch. Like, if there is a bug in OpenSSL, how quickly can you replace every single server that has OpenSSL on it in your infrastructure? And for a lot of people, that's, that's, that answer is a very long time. So I think I think it's worth the investment to be able to you know dispose of your infrastructure and build it again from scratch. in, in the case of like having a vulnerability like Heartbleed come out, so basically, yeah. your point is that you would rather, what, even though you can only trust yourself because you can only know what you did, and that you are a trustworthy person theoretically, I guess, unless you have <laughs> I don't trust something myself. else wrong with you. Then you would rather put the trust in the crowd and say, you know. I have, I have, you know, systems are so complex that I have deemed myself incapable of knowing all the things and all the ways that something can be exploited. So, yeah, and therefore, I'm going the to crowd, use these other tools. I would say the crowd is smarter than any single developer. Well, I mean, we talk about the, that literally it's impossible for, like, there, there is no person who understands how every bit of OSX works. It's true. That it's actually impossible. The Joe Armstrong thing of, you know. Everything has become so complex that you can't. This it's not actually possible to hold all that information in your own head at once and never have to have a reference. Yeah, I don't. I'm not saying that open source is necessarily more secure than closed source, but I think that um, in terms of security, it's important to have to place your trust in a mature project, uh, and by mature, that has been in use for a long time by a lot of people and has a lot of people working on it. And has had the opportunity for those vulnerabilities to be flushed out. Um, and I mean, there's always the possibility that there are more that have not been found yet. Um, but that seems better than a an immature project that has had no vulnerab- vulnerabilities found yet, or or very few. That like the the worst is still ahead, I guess. Did you guys get that he was not supporting open source from the article? Because I didn't get that. No, I didn't. I didn't get that okay. at all. I think quite the opposite. I mean, he does say. The moral is obvious. You can't trust code that you did not totally create yourself. No matter of source level verification or scrutiny will protect you from using untrusted code. So I can't trust code I wrote myself. I, I would extend it to say that. <laughs> so you can't trust anything. So yep. might as well let someone else do some work. Moral of the story. Computers are hard. We should all give up. <laughs> Turn to complete. A podcast no longer about programming. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, Destiny. What? <laughs> I don't know if you can trust the Destiny servers. Well, what's the worst case in that in that sense? <laughs> Shell shock. What if we were to think about the article in modern? I don't want to say modern times, but like today. Like, do you think he was looking ahead and it was like a not a troll article, but like I'm gonna write this thing that makes you think differently? Like, you know what I'm saying? So, what if he is saying 
that you can't trust code that you didn't write, but he actually wants you to trust it because he wants <laughs> you to realize that you know, like for Rails, for example, like if someone tries to make a bad commit to Rails, there's like a bunch of gatekeepers that will probably catch it. You know, I wonder if he might have been going in that way if somebody talks about the people who exploit computer systems should be prosecuted, that that is that kind of thing should theoretically make things safer for everyone else. I was actually just talking to somebody about Apple Pay yesterday, and they're like, oh, why would you trust Apple Pay? I'm like, you know how insecure your credit card is? Like, My God, we use, we use pieces of plastic with magnetic strips on them. Not even just the strip, like the number That's... and back code is sufficient to, to like charge on your account, right? And you hand oh, it to sure. a server but, who but runs away. But also the magnetic strip, you can skim, you can do... You oh my God, the strip. they're so the number. Like, it's the Yes, you can just use ever. the number, but and I'm t- apparently you haven't watched enough burn notice. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, you, you hand it to a server who like runs away with it, right? And they have like the internet they don't, and a yeah, camera they don't even have to have, in their Yeah, pocket. they don't even have to have a tool. They can just write the shit down. Yet, like we're not living in constant fear that all of our money is going to get taken out of our, our credit cards, right? Well, then there are like the data breaches from like Target and Home Depot and... Oh, constantly. Yeah. Yeah, well, because you, you have... If you have millions of credit cards on in your data stores, why wouldn't someone try and steal from you? It's a honeypot. Well, yeah, it is. And it's, you know, it's they're like the biggest bank. The biggest takeaway Holding from the article for me was the last part of him talking about prosecuting people. I thought he was more talking about times are changing and like there's going to be a new No, set. it was a call to arms. It was because people weren't prosecuting. There weren't laws against that the the four one four game what what were That's they what I, was I read like what say, they were like, actually arrested like times are changing and we need to like fix these problems and we're gonna have a new set of crime on our hands and this is how you deal with it. You know what the four one four gang did? Two of them def- they pleaded guilty to two counts of making harassing telephone calls. Like that's that's what they actually were prosecuted for. That's all they ever did. No, <laughs> they broke into a computer system. Uh, but they didn't have any laws to to cover it, right? So they they broke into to... into three different large systems, and from flipping Wisconsin. I mean, no hate for Wisconsin, but they. You should. This is fascinating. I'm. This is before my time, so I thought this was very interesting. But they literally were a Boy Scout troop, and they were like, you know, what would be cool breaking into. Los Alamos National Laboratory, a cancer center, and a bank. I was just going to get into their systems. I was just going to bring that up. What if, so you, we should, I guess, what if it's a like a little kid, like a teenager experimenting? Should we prosecute him to the fullest to like for breaking to something? What so if, if just, you were bored and you were like, what if I just took a gun into a bank, you know, because it's Saturday. But like, it's okay, that's kind of right. That's what he's that's what he's getting at in the speech is that you know that it's dangerous for people to do that and that people need to know that it's dangerous. So what I if mean, that did, kid tells you tell informs the bank of hey there there's a vulnerability in your system and he does it in the recommended way. There's no recommended way for breaking into a system and then telling someone you did it afterward. No, there is there is responsible disclosure. Yeah. Um, Should he still? Although, be? yeah, although like you are actively, you have to actively be hacking them to find that that vulnerability. Yeah, I guess some companies like have competitions too, where they open like say, okay, it's okay to hack us this week. Yeah, like uh, white white hat hacking. 
is what it's called. Have any of you worked in places where like management has required you to read the source code of things you've... <laughs> you've <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up because I've, I've won, I forgot to mention that. Um, yeah, I've been at like multiple companies where, in Ruby specifically, we can't talk to Ruby gems because, God forbid, somebody puts like a, a vulnerability on Ruby gems and then we'll pull it down. So the the fix for this, again, in air quotes, the fix is we're going to host our own internal gem server and then everybody's just going to blindly copy gems down and then that will be more secure. <laughs> so it ends up being like a a manual cache of Ruby gems that it, that slows the development team down so much because it's a pain in the ass to like move the gems down and actually update them. I know there are solutions you can get to like actually do a better job of that, but almost every large company I've worked at has had their own internal gem server that is a pain in the ass. Sometimes the uh, like paranoia is worse than like the worst case scenario. It's like having like an antivirus program on your PC. Every time I've had Borland on my PC, it was like worse than any virus I could have gotten. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think if you're going to like do that kind of thing, you need to pay somebody to actually audit those gems and not just rely on the, the application development teams to do it because they're not going to do it. Have any of you ever done a security audit on a code base? There are, like, specifically for for Rails, there are, like, vulnerability checkers. Mm-hmm. Then there's also, um, oh, what is that that application uh, called? There's, there's some, like, exploit detection framework. Oh, meta-exploit? Yeah, meta-exploit. Um, you can run that against a web server, and it has a database and exploits, and it can try to try to detect. It doesn't matter what application you're, or what programming language or framework your application uses. Um, it can still try to detect the, the exploit. I think yeah. Rails has a Rails guide on checking for like basic security stuff. So if you have a Rails application, check out the Rails guides on security. Because it's literally the least you can do. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's being a good citizen, I guess, for your app. Yeah, no, there's a lot less you can do. Coming from the Microsoft stack, I would m- more often than not, I would see credit cards and passwords not encrypted. It's just ridiculous. Uh, SQL statements thrown around with like no concern for like SQL injection. Injection. Attacks. It's really ridiculous. And r- at least Rails kind of guides you to the pit of success. Like you have to try extra hard to create those kind of vulnerabilities in Rails. Pam, so what got you interested in this topic? Well, it was me browsing papers I love and papers we love. And this one was only four pages. And I was like, I can get the people on the podcast to read this paper (laughs) because it's only four pages. Wow. Because some of the other papers, I think you all would, you're going to whine about them. The ones I want to read. I mean, like, even if it's like 30 or 50 pages, that's like a tenth the size of a book. Yeah, we but book, we academic a, papers are hard. Mm, They're like... We, we can do it together. Because there's probably... I have faith in us, Pam. I, th- I think academic papers probably squeeze like book information into paper form and just say, you know, here, basic concept. And then, you know, and here's an example. And of course, as one does. And then there's, you know, <laughs> ridiculous, ridiculousness and lambdas and shit. Yeah, I feel like I I wish there was like a, uh, maybe papers we love is, I haven't looked at the read documentation for a while, but I wish there was like, you know, start here. Because I've been been told that most computer science papers reference previous computer science papers. That's how academia works, Justin. It'd be nice if there was a tree. You just described a basic tenet of academia. (laughs) I I wish that like. actually the point. (laughs) I wish I I could be like, oh, I want to learn about dependent types, right? And it could show me like dependent type papers. And then it would also show me like, hey, you should have read all these other papers before you read this one. And then I can just go back and read. Well, then when there's, yeah. So, so the words you need to look for are, you know, 
seminal work <laughs> mentions of stuff like that. Papers We Love is well organized, so it is well organized into the folders and things like that. But yeah, it's. Uh, I think you do make a good point too that if you don't understand something in a paper, that just looking at their bibliography and then saying maybe I should start with some of the stuff they reference is. I have an a good article idea. that I read on how to read a paper. I have to dig it up and I'll put it in the show notes. It basically talks about like you have to read it like three times and like skim it the first time just for like the table of contents or something to see if you're interested. And then the second time is like like pick a section or something. I'm probably butchering it, but there's like a process that this guy uses to like weed out things that he's truly interested in and not to get lost in them. So I'll put it in the show notes. Hmm. So I canceled my Bluehost account uh, like two weeks ago. Was long was long overdue. <laughs> and, and did you remember that it killed your email? Yeah, no, that's fine. I already, I already oh, my DNS. I made that email. mistake. <laughs> my email was dead for like two months. It was great. So then I, finally, someone told me, and I was like, "Oh, I uh, guess if anyone used my contact form, it didn't work." <laughs> um, no. So the terrifying thing is, I went to cancel, and they're like, "Sure, we can we can uh, do that for you." What are the last four characters of your password? And I what? It's kind of yeah. Uh, like, why wouldn't they just ask for your password? Well, yeah, but the last four characters of my password, it made me pretty sure my password was not encrypted anywhere. What if they... That's not responsible disclosure, yeah, Len. Yeah, I mean, they could be doing something. Well, what if, yeah, what if they split your password? I don't trust They, they stored the entire that. password, and they also stored a hash of the last four digits characters. And then when they ask you over the phone, they put those four in, it checks it against the hash. But yeah, most likely not. They probably just sort of plain text. Yeah, because it would just be easier to just be like, why don't we just ask a security question or like use your last four of your credit card like a sensible person. <laughs> Name three files on your server <laughs> that we're looking at right now. I'm surprised you guys didn't bring up any like NSA spying stuff. Yeah, yeah. I like I like I like that paper though. I like well, I like the um. I did like the paper, but I also liked the idea of reading a paper because I do not read papers. So thank you, Pam, for making me read a paper. There. So this is your warm-up paper. I am this is really, for... It's a lecture. Like this is, this is very accessible. I'm looking forward to more papers. What is next week's episode? Oh, we, we have Yana next week. So Talking that's about next week's episode. junior developer problems. Well, she's not. She's new to the industry. We won't okay. don't want to call her a junior developer. Okay. So, but so Yana has been working in the industry as as a developer a little bit over a year, and she's doing IT before that, I believe. Mm. But she transitioned into being a full time developer a little over a year ago, and she's awesome. She's TA'd for my JavaScript class before, and I hope that she'll she'll tell us about all the bad things we do to people who are new. <laughs> and how we can not be so bad at it. That's what I hope for. Do we want to do picks? Sure. Good. Do you want to start? Yeah, I got one. So my friend, I'm going to pick a new holiday, which you can celebrate this this weekend, or you can pick a different day. But it is a book, a blanket, and a day without work. And so my friend Lisa... You know, we we do a lot of stuff, you know, at work and we do stuff outside work. And so sometimes just taking an actual day off where you decide not to do anything can be really great. And so since it's fall and having blankets and books sounds really nice, Lisa invented a new holiday that you can celebrate this Saturday. I think I'm going to celebrate mine on on Monday since I'm moving this weekend. Hmm. But so you can 
have time to yourself and enjoy the holiday. Are you moving to that area that you talked about? <sighs> Probably, Jervon. We okay. can talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a pick, Jervon? I do have a pick. I'm going to pick Destiny. <laughs> I already did. Have you already, you've already done this? <gasps> no, Justin did. I did. All right. I'm going to say I'm going to pick a PlayStation 4. <laughs> and if you have pick PSN. PlayStation 4. Uh, if you're on PlayStation Network, add me. I am Jarma. I need friends. Uh, <laughs> also, I'm going to pick Screen Hero. I do remote pairing yesterday. And it worked flawlessly. I really enjoyed it. Um, do you have a paid account? Promptworks does. Oh. I think we're eventually going to get paid accounts for everyone. Since, but I've been the only one that used it so far. I think. Uh, don't you only need paid accounts for half of people? I think so. I, I don't know. We're gonna work something out. <laughs> um, and then my music pick is a song called "Big Lost" by Diplo. And those are my picks. So last week I I left during the recording and it came back. And then when I when I went to edit, I heard all you guys talk about CrossFit and you got so much wrong. Uh, so yeah, I, lo- I love CrossFit, obviously. Uh, but was I just making fun of CrossFit? Because I do that. Yeah, you were. Um, yeah. So I'm gonna. Pick- is your pick CrossFit? My pick is this article about CrossFit. Uh, this guy wrote. Uh, this guy came in last place in the CrossFit Games. So the CrossFit Games uh, happen uh, every year, and you can any anyone can can sign up, and your score is tracked with like everyone else in the country. And uh, this guy came in last, and he just talked about all the support he got as barely being able to like do one rep of the workout. But it just like exemplifies like how the CrossFit community is like very supportive of every member. You know, whoever finishes first is not going to get any recognition because everyone else is still working out, uh, and everyone comes to support people who are uh, doing their best to uh, finish. So yeah, my pick is uh, I came in last place in the uh, CrossFit Games. <laughs> cool. Uh, I don't really have a. So I'm looking at my bookmarks bar and I figured I would mention um, Amazon has this thing called Amazon Smile where they donate 0.5% of all your purchases to a charity. Um, so if you go to smile.amazon.com, you can pick your charity. And then <clears throat> if you change your bookmarks for Amazon to be smile.amazon.com instead of amazon.com, then it will just automatically um, donate money uh, as a percentage of your purchases. So if you use Amazon as much as I do, then you should do that. And the charity I picked was um, Child's Play, and they provide um, like video games, board games, and uh, other forms of entertainment to children in hospitals. Uh, yeah. Cool. Uh, so show notes are at turing.cool slash 24. Follow us on Twitter at turing.cool, and I'll uh, talk to you guys next week. See you. See ya. Bye.